American Timelines is a member of the Queen City Podcast Network, powered by Ortho Carolina. Find out more at QueenCityPodcastNetwork.com. So now I'm obsessed with time. Come on, tell me about the time. Had it all in my head tonight. Had the time of my life. When the words all come down, like blues on Tuesdays, come down. Throw it all away. Throw it all Welcome away. to another episode of American Timelines. I'm Amy and that's Joe. And we are History for Jerks. We are presenting 1951 and we, at the moment through American Timelines we go through an entire year month by month with weird things that happen, notable things that happen, scary things that happen and Amy will usually delve into a murder or a or a UFO abduction or something or similar. something else gross or off-putting uh but we are we are about to the end of 1951 we've done a bunch of these episodes now we're in december we're in the last month and we i hope you guys have enjoyed we've added guests this season um and so today is no different we have an awesome guest that we've been wanting to work with for a long time Mm -hmm. uh somebody who's also part of the queen city podcast network uh we have an, he's an author of the Christmas courtroom trilogy, a self-proclaimed recovering trial lawyer <laughs> who turned over a new page upon retiring to highlight local and regional authors on his popular podcast. Please welcome the producer and host of the Charlotte Readers podcast, Mr. Landis Wade. Hi, Landis. Hey, hey Joe and Amy. So, uh, so happy to be on American Timelines. I love your energy level. <laughs> yeah, We are happy to have you. Yes. Thank you for being here. I know it's a little out there and uh, for somebody who's completely normal like yourself, it's probably uh, <laughs> odd. As far as a, we know. As far as we know. Yeah. yeah. I mean, maybe behind closed doors, you act crazy like us, but uh. <laughs> uh, nobody's accused me at least lately of being normal because you know, what kind of person leaves a, Perfectly good uh, financially secure law practice and decides to go into a podcast. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Podcasters. A really cool person is what I You say. know what? Yeah, I think. Like, I dig that. And of course, we might be the only people that really dig that. But uh, yeah. Uh, yeah, that's it. So you had this long career as a lawyer, and then now you're doing the podcast. Talk a little bit about, like, what, you know, what the differences are. What made you change? And tell us about the podcast. Yeah, great. Thanks for that. Um, so basically, I was swimming around in a lot of conflict, uh, being a lawyer at the big law firm for many years, and I'd, you know, uh, gotten to my mid fifties, and I'm like, okay, uh, this is there's a lot of conflict. What am I going to do with my life? Uh, started looking to Act Three. What are you going to do in Act Three? Everybody goes through that, right? Mm-hmm. We're all getting older, and I thought, uh, I know, I'm gonna, uh, I'm gonna try to do something that I don't know anything about. I'm gonna try to start mm-hmm. a podcast and. Uh, it actually started because I had a bad back and I was, I was at my, uh, Hey Sarah Vibra who works on my back. She was working on my back. She'd been on radio in Austin, Texas at one time. And she, she starts talking podcasting and she said, well, you can do this. Let's just go in the studio. And I said, well, I want to, I know what I want to do. I want to interview authors because it's too yeah. expensive. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> right. <laughs> so, so I'd written these three books, but I'd kind of stumbled along through them. And I, and, and I did, you know, I did pretty well with the third when it got an award and all this kind of stuff. But I was like, I want to get better at this. I want to learn more about writing. But, but I figured that I didn't want to go read about mm-hmm. a bunch of 
dead writers and write the, I didn't, I didn't want to go into higher academia. It, look, MFAs are great, but not for me at age 62. I was, you know, look, you can't, you know, you can count the days, right? So I said, I want to go learn from people. I'm going to start a podcast where I can ask authors how they do what they do, and I'm going to feature their work, and I'm going to read their work because right. mm-hmm. the best way to be a writer is to be a reader. You know, you read a lot, you read, you read a lot, you read, read, read. If you enjoy reading, you can become, you know, a good writer. So I thought, okay, well, let's do that. Let's go into the studio. I kind of snuck out my last four four months in the, yeah. on, at nights and weekends and went to Advent co-working. Didn't tell anybody what I was doing. Got a couple of people from my critique group and a couple mm-hmm. of writers I knew. Would you please come in and be my guinea pig? And actually, y'all are podcasters. You know this. I had a Zoom. I didn't know how I was using it. And I thought I had lost the file. I couldn't find the damn file. I, if I can say that word on here. I couldn't find the file. Yeah, you could say, <laughs> yeah. oh, no, okay. you can say anything. I couldn't find the damn file. You know, I thought I'd lost it. Yeah. <laughs> Where's that fucking file? Yeah, exactly. And I thought I called Sarah. I said, Sarah, what, where is it? She said, it's got different folders. You just need to look at all the folders. And I'm like, oh, okay. Okay, so yeah. I had to go chase it down. Anyway, that was a, oh, a, God, yeah, been, been there. there. And then there. I won't talk. I won't yeah. talk about the time I forgot to hit record. You know, and all that kind of stuff. <laughs> oh yeah, but, I've been there too. Yeah, but but you know, I thought this will be a kind of a fun way to um, be a part of a writing community and try to develop something uh, without you know necessarily going and just spending a lot of time in school. And also, you know, the writing community is very. Um, I would say supportive of one another. And I picked up on that and I wanted to do something that would help other writers. And as you know, radio is great, but there are only so many times these days that a radio show will interview an author and they have to be like a New York times bestseller or something. Yeah. Right. So, so so I thought I'm going to start a podcast uh, where I can interview local authors who come to the studio. Uh, Then it started to be regional. People came from around North Carolina Uh, and then the pandemic hit. Oh yeah. And it's like, and it's like, okay, what do I do now? I can't go in the studio, so I had to learn how to use what we're using today, this thing called Squadcast, and 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 then all of a sudden, I started getting authors from uh, n- nearby states, and then authors from around the country. I've now interviewed authors internationally, yeah. so it's kind of a cool thing that's developed. And all the while, I'm continuing to write. So I wrote the three books since it's, since we're talking about December. I wrote a. You mentioned the Christmas courtroom trilogy. That's that's kind of a cross between my cousin Vinny and Miracle on Thirty Fourth Street. Oh, if wow. you like my, oh, I love it. If, if you like my cousin Vinny and you and you like the happy ending of Miracle on Thirty Fourth Street, then you're gonna you're gonna like my books because uh, I take a curmudgeon of a judge who has to be the final arbiter of you know the truth about people who think they work for Santa Claus. You know? Yeah. And I put an old guy, I put a guy, old guy on trial for stealing the key to Christmas, and he has a young lawyer representing him who could, can't believe what he's hearing and he has to solve it uh, along with the judge. And that's, that's sort of how we got started. I thought, well, that was yeah. fun. Mm-hmm. Writing the Christmas heist was fun. Let's do it again. So I wrote the legally binding Christmas and, uh, and then I wrote the Christmas redemption and then I started podcasting and you know what? It takes a lot of time to podcast. Yes, yeah. Yeah. it does. Yeah. And, and so I didn't have as much time to write my next book and it's been really nice because while this last couple of years have been going on and I've been doing this cause I've now, I just released my 200th episode. Wow. Charlotte yeah. Podcast. I saw that. Congratulations. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. Thank you. I've been kind of cranking them out. There's nothing else to do in the pandemic. Yeah. Right? So you might as, well, right. yeah. might as well talk, talk to people, but I'm proud of the fact that this last year while authors could not get out in the bookstores and do their tours that I helped at least a hundred authors 
tell their stories, you know, on the podcast. Yeah, that's great. And so it's, it's just, it's just a different way to do it. And so with that, um, I'm, my mind's working. I know I'm working on another book in my head, but I get this idea for this book and Joe, you know what it is because we're going to do this at some point, yes. you know, with ner- nerdy night. Uh, yes. I got this idea interviewing an, a local author about the Mecklenburg declaration of independence. So I've just finished that manuscript. It's uh it's about 90,000 words. It's in, it's in pretty good shape. I'm, I'm looking at options for publication and uh, it's, it's the next thing. It's not, I've gotten away from Christmas. Yeah. I know. Christmas, I was going to ask is. you, is that your favorite holiday? It, yeah. <laughs> yeah, it is. And it's my father. It, it was my father's favorite uh, to the point that you can never open a Christmas present until Christmas morning. There's none of this oh. cheating ahead of time, you know, everything, everything had to be that morning. And uh, he, he was a really, big lover of Christmas. So he, he loved, and I, I wanted to get those books out, you know, before he died. And that was, he enjoyed reading those. And, but now I've done Christmas. I've said, lawyers have said Christmas three, three times, <laughs> three times. <laughs> yeah. three, three times. I figure that's enough. A lot of good things come in three. So now I'm going to the mystery route. I'm solving a local mystery, yes. um, which starts out with, uh, I'll just give you the, the inciting incident. Yeah. There's a, there's a lawyer, he gets kicked out of his uh, law firm uh, when he's 65 years old. He's lost his wife. He's relegated to a retirement community called the Independence Retirement Community. And he meets a couple of characters who kind of nudge him along because the first day he gets there, a man who's 96-year-old is found dead in the condominium at the Independence Retirement Community. And the manuscript he was working on for the Mecklenburg Declaration of Independence is missing. Oh, yeah. yeah. And when they find that out, they also find in his condo a handwritten will where he where he cut his beloved granddaughter out of the will and left his 50 million dollar estate to Sue Ellen Parker, the most despised resident at the end. Ooh, that's a good twist. (laughs) (laughs) So, 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 so basically this lawyer who wanted to get away from the practice of law uh, is fed up with it, done with it, ready to go. He feels himself being pulled back in to law practice uh, out of this uh, retirement community um, to try to solve a mystery that's evaded local historians and actually historians nationally for oh, 250 yeah. years. Yeah. So the, so the mech, yeah. the mech deck is so, huge in Charlotte. I mean, that's yeah. the big yeah. thing. And if those yeah, of you yeah. who listen and aren't from Charlotte, uh, basically Charlotte wrote the declaration of independence before the declaration of independence. Uh, <laughs> but the go. guy there delivering it to, uh, <laughs> Thomas Jefferson and those guys, uh, never, never delivered it. So, yeah, just take our word. <laughs> well, well no, wait, wait, let's, 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 yeah, take our word for it because they named him. Yeah, Captain, yeah, Captain, Captain Jack. Jack so, you know? and, uh, um, <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, 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 Cap, there's no dispute that Captain Jack rode 500 miles from Charlotte, yeah, a little, a little tiny town, town called Charlotte at the time, to fill. fill to, to Philadelphia. The question <laughs> that's is, the thing we don't know. We think he got drunk, yeah. and that's why it happened. So that's why we celebrate. That's why I got all the breweries. Uh, there's all this history. But <laughs> that's right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so anyway, for the for, for those, you know, it's it's just an interesting little story. And uh, the the question is, if it was true, the other mystery is that uh, the words that are in the mech deck are very yeah. similar to some of the words in the Declaration of Independence. So. They don't, oh, they don't yeah, that's what we do think. Everybody, people think that. So those yeah. of us who love Charlotte, that's what we. Think. <laughs> that's what we say. <laughs> yeah, 
if you're from Virginia, if, if you're from Virginia, <laughs> you right. think we're a bunch of well, it's funny. I thought, and I was so, going to ask yeah. you about the Christmas thing. I thought maybe you were doing it as a clever thing because I, I've often thought anybody who's made a Christmas movie that's made a hit, like Elf. I was thinking this the other day with with Will Ferrell and the Elf. They were so smart because there was, yeah, was all the Christmas movies at the time had been dated and were older, and uh-huh. and so if you make a Christmas movie that's a hit and funny. Yeah. It's gonna be a thing every year. Like you're gonna get royalties after every year. It's gonna be screened and watched and rewatched. Yeah. You don't see that with you know other movies that were big. You know at the time at the time or whatever. And then they're gone. Yeah. You know, but uh, that's, that's that's what we're hoping for. That's what we're hoping for. Yeah. At least I can sell a few books each Christmas. Yeah. Go. Well, maybe so. that's maybe we figure out a way to do. <laughs> Uh, a live version. Well, it's of funny your... that we're going to be covering Christmas in 1851. Yeah, it's a perfect way that we're gonna, we're in Christmas. Right. We got a bunch my, of Christmas days. My murder happens on Christmas. Yeah, she's got a horrible thing on Christmas. I've got a horrible yeah. thing on Christmas. Oh. So, so I might ruin Christmas. <laughs> we for might you, ruin right? Christmas for you, Landis. <laughs> <laughs> I'm apologizing. Well, it, it is a mystery. My books start out with horrible okay. things happening, you know, right near Christmas, and and then you got to solve yeah. the mystery because yeah. you know. It's well, maybe we'll maybe we'll do that. So, with that being said, thank you for being here, Landis, and please check out the Charlotte Readers podcast. Yeah. You don't have to be from Charlotte to get it. Obviously, you have authors now from everywhere, and that's really cool that uh, you give that platform to those guys. And I love that community so tight knit. And I'm not much of a reader, but I like storytelling and I like books. I do audible. So I listen to books because I'm an idiot. Um, otherwise, so I guess. Yeah. Well, no, no, it's great because, you know, the, you mentioned the 200th episode. I had John Hart on as the, uh, for the 200th episode and his latest book called the unwilling is actually set in Charlotte, but you know, he's a six time New York times bestselling author. The only back to back winner of the Edgar award. And we kind of joked. I said, and so you, you finally got the <laughs> That's as big as a team. Yeah. <laughs> and, and he and and he was a good sport. He said, "Yeah, we've been trying for years to get on that podcast. We just finally, you know." Finally but then, uh, you know, also uh, David oh, cool. Baldacci is going to be on this month. And uh, if you're if you like thriller writers, him. And then uh, we got uh, Clyde Edgerton coming and, up, and Ron and Rash. If you go to your website, here, there's so a list of everybody you've already good, had. Yeah. Hundreds of people that. That are really good. Yeah. A lot of local people do that. I know. So yeah, yeah it's really cool. Yeah. Yeah. So, so we got, we got a, a guest list page now at charlotteriorspodcast.com and you can, we've got 120 some authors from Charlotte area. We've got about 60 some from other places in North Carolina and we've got about 60 some from wow, 20 other good. states. Wow. Cool. Right well, now, so. Thank you again. Thanks for being here. Yeah. We're going to jump right into the timeline now. Yeah. Um, so thanks sure. for being here, yeah. Landis, right. and and feel free. To, oh, uh, when we get to your thing, you'll take over. But throughout the whole podcast episode, if you have anything to add or what the hell, anything you want to add, any expletives, whatever, just feel free to jump <laughs> in. Uh, nothing is ever out of bounds. And so, uh, right. but I want to start. I want to ask you, Landis, are you at all? You don't strike me as one, but you never know. Are you at all a wrestling fan? Oh boy. <laughs> well, I grew up, you know, I am from Charlotte, so I, I, I saw yeah. I saw Ric Flair coming along, right? So, you know, Woo! the golden boy. Yeah, yeah. So uh, yeah. I used to probably watch some, cha- you know, some championship wrestling. I, I, I wouldn't say that I've ever been to the Grady Cole Center to watch it in person, but I know it's here. Okay. It was there, you know. So you know some old wrestling names, maybe, if I dropped them. In front I, of I, yeah, possibly. I couldn't. I couldn't recite them, but it's like if you give me a multiple choice, sure, I can. Okay, I can do so we'll see if you can guess this. Because one thing I've been trying to do with this birthday thing is, is 
cryptically talk about somebody and see if you can guess. Amy, this one you won't be able to get because no. you don't like wrestling. Although you did go see Wrestling at the Chase in St. Louis. No, I didn't go. <laughs> oh, you didn't go. It was on <laughs> Sunday morning right after Tarzan. Oh, so you're watching. TV. Right, okay. But you never went. I your never dad, went. Your dad went, he no. told me. Oh, he did? Uh, okay. So I have a birthday. That, I only have one birthday this month that I'm going to mention. This was December 5th, 1951, and you won't know this person, Amy, I don't think, but there's a chance maybe, (laughs) I I thought maybe Landis, because you grew up in Charlotte, you might know one of this guy. So this is Lawrence Whistler, an American retired professional wrestler and author, perhaps best known for his feud with his mentor, Bruno Sammartino, during the early 1980s, as well as his work as a wrestler and color commentator for World Championship Wrestling. Among other accolades, so his real name is Lawrence Whistler. That's not his wrestling name. Uh, <laughs> but his wrestling name does have Larry in it. Among other accolades, he's a two-time world champion, having twice held the AWA World Heavyweight Championship. He was the final holder of that title. He was inducted into the WWE Hall of Fame on March 28, 2015, by Bruno San Martino. Any ideas, Lance? Any guesses at who this is? You really are obsessed with this wrestling thing, aren't you? <laughs> yes, he is. Uh, well, let's say Larry. Let's say uh, Lasso Larry. No, that wouldn't work. Let's say uh, Larry, Larry, Larry the uh, – uh, I, I, like I said, I only know uh, nature of Okay, that's a, yeah. Larry Zabisco. Does that ring a bell? Larry Nabisco? Larry Zabisco. Zabisco. Yeah, no, okay. it does not ring a bell. Okay, it does ring a bell. Okay. Yeah, I knew it didn't ring a bell because you said Nabisco, so I knew you didn't know Zabisco. So. What does he like? Does he like to eat, uh, you know, vanilla wafers? Or yeah. Something? Yeah, so. yeah. All right, so that's Larry Zabisco's birthday, everybody. And the past, um, this, this, just this recent yeah. en- entry was brought to you by why I hate birthdays. Oh, this is exactly why yes. you hate birthdays because I'm talking about a wrestler. I mean, he's in the WWE Hall of Fame, so I thought there was a chance Landis might have known. But all right, Larry Zabisco, he was a big time for anybody who likes wrestling. They know Larry Zabisco. So now you both can drop that name. Next right, time you're talking to wrestling fans. And then we're going to move on to December 11th, 1951. Landis, what about baseball? Are you a baseball fan? Oh, God. I'm a baseball fan, yes. Okay, so sports. Amy hates it. But this is somebody we talked about a little bit before, Amy. And according to PBS's American Experience, at the end of Joe DiMaggio's last year, a scouting report written about DiMaggio by a Brooklyn scout, Andy High, was published in a Life Magazine article. The report... It may have been embarrassing to DiMaggio, but it did not stray from the truth. It said that Joe DiMaggio now could not stop quickly. He couldn't throw hard. And that runners can take an extra base on him. He can't run, and his reflexes are very slow. Despite his diminished powers, DiMaggio helped the Yankees win that year's World Series, as we talked about, against the New York Giants. Mm-hmm. Four games to two. How old was he at this time? Uh, you know? that's a Gosh, that's a good question. How old was Joe DiMaggio? I uh, shouldn't know how old he was. Because he's one of those people that looks like he's 50 in every picture, no matter how old the Let's picture see. is. Yeah, he always looked old. He's like Mr. Rogers. So 1951, he retired. He was born in 1914. Somebody do the math. 51 minus 14. Yeah, let's see. Carry the 11 12. minus 4 is 6, and that would make that a 4. 
36. Am I wrong? Is that right? 36, 40. Yeah, I guess he would be about 36. That's not that old nowadays. Right. Uh, but think about baseball players back then. Drank a lot, smoked cigarettes. Anyway, he he uh, he hit home run in the fourth game of the World Series, and then he made major contributions in the fifth and sixth games. And after winning the game, DiMaggio's teammates all handed him bats, balls, and other paraphernalia for him to sign. Uh, and they asked him about next year. He answered simply, I've played my last game. If he wanted to go on top, he had with his last victory. And he had won more World Series than any other player. So in December, DiMaggio met with Yankee owners Dan Topping and Del Webb, knowing that DiMaggio could still play in the clutch. It was a huge box office draw. They tried to convince him not to retire. Play one more year, they said. You could pick your spots. You can just pinch hit, just play in home games. They offered to pay him what they paid him in 51, which is $100,000 for 1951. That is huge. But he refused. And in the afternoon of December 11th, 1951, Joe DiMaggio held a press conference Never a comfortable speaker. He read a release. He spoke plainly. He said, I told you fellows that this spring, I thought this would be my last year. I only wish I could have had a better year. But even if I hit 350, this would have been the last year for me. I feel I've reached a stage where I can no longer produce for my ball club, my manager, my teammates, and my fans the sort of baseball their loyalty to me deserves. Now, he stuck around for a while at this press conference answering questions and posing for photographers. At one point, the electricity needed for the television and radio equipment blew a fuse, and the Yankee offices all went dark. By the time they got the lights back on again, DiMaggio had vanished. Oh, he just he just geez. disappeared because it was dark. That's how <laughs> I that's how I leave every party. Like I I don't ever I hate saying goodbye to everybody. I don't know why I hate that, but yeah, um, yeah if I ever retire, I'm gonna just disappear. I'm gonna pull the lights and and leave gone. my party from there. Um. Yeah, so uh, are you a Yankees fan, Landis? Are you a DiMaggio fan? Uh, so, you know, I, I, no, I was not a Yankees fan. My son grew up and uh, became a fan of the Boston okay. Red Sox. We went out and watched them play the Yankees. Um, but I do, I did, you know, DiMaggio's got this great history, you know, Jolting Joe, the Yankee Clipper. He was uh, got all kind of records he broke. I mean, all, all kind of records. I love that he vanished, almost like he stole home. In the yeah, that's you know? right. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's really cool. Uh, yeah, and he. Uh, we always talk about because Amy's a big Marilyn Monroe fan, so we talked about mm-hmm. that he was with her and he was not attractive. But that brings us to December 16th, 1951, and we're going to turn it over to Landis Wade here, uh, who's going to take over for a little bit yeah well, so thank you this was a lot of fun you gave me you gave me this project and i got really into it and started doing some research so i want you to guess what i've chosen to discuss uh launched as a tv show as you said uh, december 16th 1951 um and i'll just say a little bit of an opening and maybe you can get a feel for what, what's going on here <laughs> ladies and gentlemen and Joe and Amy, the story you're about to hear is true. Only the names have been changed to protect the innocent. For the next 30 minutes, in cooperation with the Los Angeles Police Department, you will travel step by step on the side of the law through an actual case from the official police files. From beginning to end, from crime to punishment, this is the story of your police force in action. So what uh, story is it? Do you know? I think so, yes. 
I'll let you guess because I already know. Because I <laughs> dragnet, dragnet, yes, dragnet, dragnet. Okay, go for it. Yeah. So, so what was dragnet? Dragnet was an American television series. It was based on a radio series of that same name. Uh, it was created by star Jack Webb. Jack Webb played the famous Joe, Joe Friday. Friday. Uh, the story you're about to see is true. That's how it changed. It went from the story you're about to hear, which is what I just read the okay. radio oh, okay. version, to the story to the story you're about to see. And uh, several actors uh, played his sidekick. I'll talk in just a minute mm-hmm. about uh, uh, Jack Webb, who played Joe Friday. But the, the, a couple of interesting things here. Um, Barton Yarbrough settled for the first season as Detective he was Ben Romero, but then he had a heart attack. And so several other sidekicks had to play aside Joe Friday for a while. Eventually in the 1960s version of the series, there was an actor who played aside Joe Friday. And uh, he was someone who later became rather famous for taking the place of McLean Stevenson who played a colonel on a famous show that was set in Korea. That's right. So this was, uh, uh, he played, uh, this was Harry Morgan. Harry Morgan played the sidekick in the sixties version. Uh, and of course on mash, he played, uh, Potter. He was the army officer who was a good human guy. So back to December of, of, of 1951, the original network. What do you think it was? Which one? Oh, was it CBS? I'm going to go with ABC. All right. Well, there was N- only one NBC. left. NBC. NBC. <laughs> <We're really> <laughs> <off>. <laughs> I have it right here. In front yeah, of the yeah. NBC premiere. Uh, yeah. And so the original release was that date, and it ran through August of 1959. Now, why did they call it dragnet? Because a dragnet is a police term, right? It is exactly right. It's a system of coordinated measures for apprehending criminals or suspects, where you close right. in. Yeah. on your prey you know it's and so you you create this net around them so all right let's what influenced the form of the show because oh. i'm going to talk we're going to talk about the first episode in just a minute but what do you what the there are a couple of things that influenced mm. it uh one was radio the other was uh jack webb's goal for mm. realism mm. now radio it was a pop believe it or not it was a popular yeah. radio show think think back to all the actors that came out in the 19 late 1940s uh before then it used this this version of the show that showed up on tv used the same kind of scripts they used in radio and they used the same kind of actors in fact liggett and myers was a sponsor of dragnet both on radio and tv you could often see joe friday uh, yeah smoking <laughs> yeah, <Fields>, right? <laughs> yeah. The sort yeah. of subtle marketing that went on there uh and they used that sort of uh proven formula for radio if you think back to the way that they did it was sort of a uh, a documentary style you know Mm -hmm. Um, and we'll talk about that in just a second but jack webb had a goal of uh sort of a stickler for detail he wanted to be true to life he had a real respect for law enforcement Um, he really got upset when people criticized the law so he decided to try to use this as a mechanism to show that police Mm -hmm. were actually doing a good job. Now, interestingly enough, it had a huge following. And yet when the sixties version released, it also released during that time when the the riots were going on in Watts. Remember when it had the LA police came down. And so you got this one version of what an LA police officer is like 
versus this other version mm -hmm. in real life. So pop culture meets pop, you know, meets real life. Um, the very first episode. Mm -mm, no, I don't know if you remember the name. I certainly didn't mm. know it, but uh, the human bomb. Now, why do you think they called that the human bomb? Hmm. Somebody's somebody's got a bomb. A terrorist to like uh, with a bomb. Yeah, dynamite <laughs> around them. Yeah, a, a, a nineteen fifty one terrorist who's carrying a bomb in a box. Okay, <laughs> he's 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 in the fourteenth floor of the LAPD Police Department, and his idea is that if you don't release my my brother who's in prison by nine o'clock, which is twenty three minutes from now, I'm going to blow oh, this wow. place up. And so they so they've only got 23 minutes to solve the crime. Now the interesting thing is, there was an actor who appeared in only one episode of Dragnet, and he appeared as the sergeant, uh, or, or, or I guess he was the lead because Joe Friday's a sergeant, but he's the lead. Uh, uh, I guess he's the police chief in this in this show. Anyway, guess who this is? He portrayed an ace defense attorney on TV for 36 years. Oh, uh, Perry Mason. Perry Mason. Who was Perry oh. Mason? Raymond. Ray, Ray, Ray Burr. Burr. Raymond Burr, yeah. <laughs> Ray, <laughs> Raymond Burr, which they called Ray Burr at the time. for Ray purposes. Burr. Really? Yeah. Hmm. And, and and he actually got huh. his start do, doing radio. Was he, he big was, friend... was he big and heavy then? Was he always big and heavy? Yeah, yeah he was. Yeah. Okay. Um, and so, you know, he was part of this group that did all these radio shows and got asked to be a part of this, but then he couldn't continue because he was actually performing as Henry the eighth in theater oh, somewhere else okay. at the time. And so he got out of that. So anyway, these two things, radio, the realism kind of got into dragnet. They had the human bomb. I might talk a minute, you know, about some of that dialogue, but, uh, you know, here's one little bit of dialogue from that first episode. They find out this guy's got a bomb. Joe Friday turns to his partner. He says, check out, Ben. You got a family. I'm a single guy. I'll take this. Wife wants me to paint the bathroom today. I'm in. <laughs> you know, yeah. so, so, so there you go. So, so what do we remember? What do y'all remember most about Dragnet? I, I think of three things. So, Tell me what you remember, and maybe they'll match up with one of the three things oh, I, I I'm got. too young. Well, what, I'm what, okay, what yeah. jumps what what jumps out at you when you think of Dragnet? I but, just remember the um, movie version that Dan Aykroyd. Yeah, like did. when that movie that that's that's what yeah. we both probably remember when uh, yeah. Tom Hanks was Pep Strebeck and uh, and yeah. they did that they did that rap <laughs> song. They did Dan Aykroyd did that. See that uh, yeah. back, we're back in time, but. But what Dan Aykroyd did was basically an impression yeah. of of the '60s version. Got you know, I feel like like yeah, uh, yeah, the what, style. What I is know. The, the what is that line? Just that the he facts, ma'am. Just the facts, ma'am. That's right. Yeah, uh, yeah. And and I was gonna I was gonna get to that because I've got a couple lines from the show I want to share with you. But the three things: this is the city, yeah, the sorry. music, the style, the the, the, yeah. the style, of the show, and the dialogue. So the theme music, it's sort of this ominous four note introduction, you know, brass tympanic theme music. And it's, uh, and then throughout the show, kind of like, and this is feeding over from radio. It has this, um, music you might hear if someone's sneaking up on you, you know, and, and, yeah, you, yeah. And, right. and the actor can't see him sneaking up on them, you know, and, it, and you got that it's going to happen. Mm -hmm. The dangers here, you know, well, that's running through yeah. this, uh, when they're moving around. And so they, they have this documentary approach and they start off with, uh, 
you know, this line that I gave you at the beginning. And uh -huh. every show is supposedly based on true life events. And then just before the commercial break at the end, the show's announcer comes on and says, you know, um, it talks about the perpetrator and their trial and what happened in their trial. And one of the things I found out it was interesting is in very rare cases, did they find the perpetrator to be not guilty of anything? <laughs> right. So they always, yeah. always found yeah. him guilty, but, but, always but, guilty. but while, and there's only one early episode where someone's found, but every, every person that Joe Friday and his partner arrested, you know, were found guilty. All right. The language, this is, this is famous lines. You might enjoy this. Amy, you mentioned just the facts, ma'am. So you do remember that, right? Yes. Yeah. Facts, well, the true, the true story behind that is that he never said those exact words. The closest he came was, all we want are the facts, ma'am. Oh, really? Huh. Yeah. Huh. <laughs> misremembered things. Yeah. Yeah. But, but it's, and, and so what he would, he, he, but it got shortened, of course. And, and that's basically what everybody says, just the facts, ma'am. And then things like this, this is the city. Los Angeles, California. I carry a badge. Yes. My name is Friday. That's mm -hmm. right. Yeah. <laughs> uh, um, and then if you got into his head, this is what kind of things I found, these quotes. Uh, All at once you lost your name. You're a cop, a flatfoot, a bull, a dick, John Law. You're the fuzz, the heat. Mm -hmm. You're poison, you're trouble, you're bad news. They call you everything. Never a policeman. Yeah. <laughs> it's not much. Yeah. It's not much of a life unless you don't mind missing a Dodger game because the hot shot phone rings, unless you like working Saturdays, Sundays, and holidays at a job that doesn't pay overtime. Oh, the pay is adequate. If you count pennies, you can put your kid through college, but you better plan on seeing Europe on your television set. <laughs> and then there's your first night on the beat. When you try to arrest a drunken prostitute on Main Street Bar and she ripped your new uniform to shreds, you'll buy another one. Out of your own damn pocket. I think I think my favorite of that is like I love it when it seems like they did that in these days when they name the eight hundred words for one thing like they call you what is that thing you said they call right, you like, whatever right. a, a dick a winner but we had that last uh, a couple weeks ago yeah. about a scam it was like a, a scam bamboozle whatever you know yeah. it's like I love those uh, but because. Yeah, and because of that, you know, I, I'm into the books and the authors. I thought I'd share this one with you. And he says, and the paperwork. Oh, you'll fill out a report when you're right. You'll fill out a report when you're wrong. You'll fill one out when you're not sure. You'll fill one out listing your leads. You'll fill one out when you have no leads. You'll make out a report on the reports you've made. You'll write enough words in your lifetime to stock a library. Yeah, <laughs> that's true. That is pretty uh, good. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And uh, so, yeah, so the protagonist, Joe Friday, he was Jan John Randolph, Jack Webb. He was an American actor. He uh, he went into the military, but he washed out of flight school. Um, he then uh, got some kind of release and he got into radio in the late 40s. Um, and then he kind of moved to San Francisco and got into TV and started producing these radio shows. And he kind of pulled all these folks together um, and his shows got you know really popular he did some movies and some movies followed him. And, uh, and then I already mentioned sort of the juxtaposition between his view about policing and what was actually right. happening in real life. But it actually, it actually became just this pop culture phenomenon and it launched in December of 1951, which fits right into American. Right, where we That's are. Right. Yeah. I think I'm most fascinated yeah. by the fact that they took a stance on it. Like it wasn't just a, show to be a show but they actually wanted to promote police and make yeah. you make, make people you sympathetic yeah, to yes, the police to, yeah which i would have never I wonder, guessed that. it yeah. makes me wonder who was 
behind the idea, kind of, because there was so much civil, just civil. Yes, uh, rights as, as we're about to talk about, there was police, a lot. Yeah. And um, it's almost like propaganda to get people to be yeah. sympathetic to the police Could at be, a time yeah. when the police were being used to oppress people. Yeah. I was like, you and I both at the end of this episode have yeah. police problem yeah. stuff so it's kind of neat how the juxtaposition of this like this is mm-hmm. this is meant to kind of help the perception mm-hmm. and here's why later and that's what yeah, we're exactly. gonna get into. well thanks Lynn. Yeah, that's, that that's good. good that Thank was you. really really good yeah. um yeah in-depth yeah. stuff so and thanks for yeah. sending over that theme song that i'm going to put in later. <laughs> yeah um uh, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> great Super. yeah and it's in the public domain, right? So I don't have to that's, pay anybody. That's what they said. You know, I'm not your lawyer, yeah. though. You have to, you know. So, I think, you know. no, I, I don't know. You're a lawyer. You are on here. That's, yeah, that's ever covered. Yeah, yeah. yeah covered, it, it, it's, it's your show. I'm just a guest. You know, if they see you, I can't do anything about it. You know? But Landis, yeah. while you're here, and since you're a lawyer, everything we've said on our 140-some episodes is all good, right? Yeah. Uh, according to you. Uh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's all covered. Yeah. yeah. Now, now, let's see, given that you're paying me zero, I'll give you advice that's worth what I'm paying you. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, yeah. Uh, which, is, which is none at all. Yeah, so. no yeah. advice at all. I'm not giving you anything. All right. Man, always trying to squeeze something out of uh, uh, yeah. everybody. All right. Well, that same day that Dragnet uh, uh, premiered on NBC, uh, there was, sadly, a Miami Airlines airliner crash. A Curtis C-46 Commando airliner crashed in the town of Elizabeth, New Jersey, shortly after taking off from nearby Newark Airport. All 56 people on board were killed. At the time, it was the second deadliest aviation accident on U.S. soil mm. behind Northwest Orient Airlines Flight 2501. Uh, the aircraft involved was a military aircraft that had been converted into a commercial airliner. Uh, it's Occupant, the aircraft's occupants on the accident flight consisted of 52 people and six crew, including the captain C.A. Lyons of Miami and Doris Ruby, a popular nightclub entertainer from Sunnyside, Queens. So I want to know who Doris Ruby was, of course, because, you know, on Wikipedia, her name was highlighted. So it means, oh, she's got her own entry. And there wasn't a lot. Uh, but the biggest thing from her thing was that she she didn't. She was flying to Miami early. She didn't really have to be there then. And Greg Sherwood, uh, who was a showgirl and best friend of Ruby, tried to discourage her from flying the night before her death. Sherwood told Ruby that if she had 10 days before her Miami opening, she could lightly get a cancellation on a better airline. Uh, and turns out she went and she died because of mm, it. Um, so what happened in the accident? Um The Miami Airlines C-46 was preparing for a non-scheduled, non-stop passenger flight from Newark to Tampa. Of the aircraft's two engines, the right engine took longer to start up ominously. People could see smoke continuously coming from that engine. Around 3 p.m. Eastern, the flight taxied out to runway 28 and was cleared for takeoff at 3.03. Just after takeoff, however, Newark ATC personnel saw a trail of white smoke coming from the right side of the aircraft. The tower controller, concerned about the danger of there being a fire, pressed the airport crash alarm button. A Miami Airlines captain observing the takeoff from the ground also saw the smoke, which he believed was due to an overheated right brake. 
He telephoned the control tower and warned for the aircraft to keep its landing gear down or if it had already been raised to extend it. The tower relayed this warning to the flight crew who acknowledged and started the process of lowering the landing gear. The aircraft continued to head in the direction it took off for a distance for about four miles, slowly gaining altitude of approximately 800 to 1,000 feet. All throughout the smoke pro- progressively worsened. By the time the aircraft had reached the four-mile point, black smoke and actual flames could be seen trailing from the underside of the right engine nacelle, uh, which is a housing, an engine housing. I had to look up how to say nacelle. Yeah. Uh, shortly after the landing gear was lowered, a large burst of flames erupted from underneath the right nacelle. The aircraft banked left to an angle about 10 degrees and continued onward in this position for another four and a half miles, gradually losing altitude as it went. While flying over the nearby city of Elizabeth, the aircraft at an estimated altitude of just 200 feet suddenly lurched into a 90-degree left bank from which no recovery was possible. Although Captain Lyons managed to keep the aircraft from hitting the streets, apartment buildings, and a railroad depot below, the aircraft's left wingtip eventually struck the gabled roof of a vacant house near its ridge. The now out-of-control aircraft then crashed nose-first into a one-story brick storage building owned by Elizabeth Water Company, before finally coming to a rest on the banks of the Elizabeth River. The aircraft's load of fuel ignited immediately upon impact, engulfing both remains of the aircraft and the wrecked storage building in a raging inferno. Nearby firefighters quickly arrived on the scene and eventually extinguished the fire after 17 minutes. The aircraft's wreckage came to rest in a generally inverted position and partially submerged in shallow water. All 52 passengers and six crew aboard the aircraft died, while another person on the ground was seriously injured. Can you imagine being injured by a plane falling out of the sky? Out of the sky at you. Like, can you imagine seeing it? Because most of this flight, it was only like 200 feet in the air. So it had to be crazy, crazy to see that. And there were like two other accidents, airplane accidents that year in this area of Elizabeth, New Jersey. So bad so that they they closed the Newark airport <laughs> uh, later that year oh until my. November of 1952 because there was just so many accidents there. For they really couldn't, couldn't take care of it. Yeah. And so this I got all this from uh, Wikipedia, but they got that from Aviation Portal, uh, a couple of Aviation Safety Network, all yeah, all the New York Times. Um, and then continuing the tragedies. December 21st, 1951, there was a coal mine explosion. This date forever changed Franklin County in uh, Illinois. It was a Friday evening, and the town was bright with holiday lights. Christmas trees glistened in the windows along residential streets. A light snow covered the ground. The school's gymnasium was packed for a Friday night basketball game as West Frankfurt took on Marion. Hours later, the gym would become a morgue. There were 247 miners who showed up to the Orient 2 mine that night around 4 p.m. Of that crew, 218 went down. It was to be their last shift until after Christmas. Chalked on the blackboard as they headed underground that evening was the greeting, Merry Christmas to the night crew. At approximately 7.35 p.m., a methane gas explosion occurred. It rocked a vast portion of the 12-square-mile mine. It snapped timber like toothpicks and picked cars up off the tracks, moving them like toys. That night claimed the lives of 119 men. All this according to Molly Parker from The Southern. That was originally published published in 2016. She even wrote that gruesome intro. 
the mine located outside of West Frankfurt was one of the area's major employers. According to lifelong residents, everyone in West Frankfurt was affected by this tragedy, including grade schoolers by the time, uh, grade schoolers of the time who remember their own losses and the suffering of classmates. Many residents even said they, they wouldn't celebrate Christmas ever again. Hmm. Yeah, so it was awful and terrible. This is this is kind of an uplifting show you got today. Yeah, right? isn't this great? Oh, and I'm yeah, not going to make like, it any better. Yeah, you, yeah, and I yeah, we're just continuing awfulness. So sadly, Landis, yours was the high point of this episode. Yes. It's all just <laughs> thank you for being a ray, terrible. a sliver of hope yeah. in the. Yeah. Uh, well, at least at least maybe some of these led to improvements in you know air safety and mine safety and that kind of. Well, thing. that is yeah. a thing that. Um, this this mine one it did this accident did Im- improve uh, the the bureau the United States Bureau of Mines called the explosion avoidable, uh, but the disaster did result in the Congress passing the Federal Coal Mine Safety Act of 1952. Oh, good. So hopefully things did get better. So that is a bright side of this. Well, coal mining um, has got to be one of the worst jobs on the planet. Oh, it's yeah. I mean, just you know, unbelievably poor awful. people. Yep. It's it's rough, but mm-hmm. this is going to bring us to Christmas Day, where you know what we forgot to do, we've gotten away from is the toys, the toys and things yeah. that we used to talk about, uh, which I wish I would have researched this. But um, I am now going to turn it over to Amy, Amy, because you have a, a grisly, awful murder probably that happened on December twenty fifth on Christmas Day, nineteen fifty one, the same day that Bloody Christmas happened. Is what I have. Okay, um, so I'll let you do yours, and then I'll sprinkling my bloody Christmas. Okay, so I'm going to talk about the murder of Harry and Harriet Moore. Harry and Harriet Moore. Yes. Okay. And I got my sources are um, an article from the NAACP.org website and the Civil Rights Movement Archive.com, which is part of the Zen Education Project, which is a really cool um, website. Zen Education? Like Howard Zen. Oh, Howard Zen. Zen Education Project. Z-I-N-N. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Harry T. Moore was born on November 18, 1905 in Houston, Florida, a tiny farming community in Suwannee County in the Florida Panhandle. All right. He was the only child of Johnny and Rosa Moore. His father tended the water tanks for the Seaboard Airline Railroad and ran a small store in front of the house. Okay. Johnny Moore's health faltered when Harry was nine years old and he died in 1914. Oh, that's sad. Rosa tried to manage alone, working in the cotton fields and running her little store on weekends. But in 1915, she sent Harry to live with one of his sisters in Daytona Beach. Okay. The following year, he moved to Jacksonville, where he spent the next three years living with three other aunts. Aunts, aunts. Aunts, aunties, titties. Jesse, Adriana, and Maisie Tyson. Oh. This would prove to be the most important period in his formative years. Jacksonville had a large and vibrant African-American community with a proud tradition of independence and intellectual achievement. Moore's aunts were educated, well-informed women. Two were educators and one was a nurse who took this spindly, intelligent boy into their house on Louisiana Street and treated him like the son they'd never had. Under their nurturing guidance, Moore's natural inquisitiveness and love of learning were reinforced. After three years in Jacksonville, he returned home to Swanee County in in 1919 and enrolled in the high school program of Florida Memorial College. Over the next four years, he excelled in his studies, earning straight A's except for one B+. He was even nicknamed Doc by his classmates. Okay. In May 1925, at the age of 19, he graduated from Florida Memorial College with a degree and accepted a teaching job in Cocoa, Florida. 
So then he spends the next two years teaching fourth grade at Coco's only black elementary school. During his first year in Brevard County, he met an attractive older woman. Well, she was 23 and he was 20. So, so not, really, not that much. Not, not really. like I was picturing like a 70 year old woman like Blanche Devereaux, who we all agree is an attractive older woman. That's right. Rue McClanahan. Named Harriet Vita Sims. Okay. She had taught school herself, but was currently currently selling insurance for the Atlanta Life Insurance. I'm still picturing Rue McClanahan, but we'll just go forward with that. No, she was she was African American as. Oh, okay. Well, well, then I'm going to picture the mom from uh, Good Time. No, Florence Henderson. (laughs) Good lord, she's an older gal. So within a year, they were married. Okay. Her family lived in Mims, which was a small citrus town outside of Titusville. A citrus town? Mm-hmm. This is Florida. So. Okay, yeah. The okay. newlyweds I've moved in with Harriet's parents until they built their own house on okay. an adjoining acre of land. Gotcha. Meanwhile, Harriet had been promoted to principal of the Titusville Colored School, which went from fourth through ninth grade. Oh, boy. He taught ninth grade and supervised a staff of six teachers. In March 1928, their eldest daughter, Annie Rosalia, nicknamed Peaches, was born. Aww. Isn't that cute? Annie Rosalia. Peaches. Her middle name's Rosalia? Yeah. That's cool. When Peaches. Pe- when Peaches was six months old, Harriet began teaching at the Men's Colored School. In September 1930, their baby daughter, Juanita Evangeline, was born. Harriet mm-hmm. Moore, at this time, was a sixth grade teacher at George Washington Public School. And there's a memory that um, another a classmate shares. Yeah. Um, or uh, uh, one of the students as an adult later shared, and I just wanted okay. to read it. Okay. He said, Mrs. Moore did not complain or express outrage at having to teach us from old tattered textbooks passed down to us from the white school. What she did do was teach us primarily from the few boxes of her own private books, which she kept hidden under her desk. Oh. Her books were about African-American people who had made important contributions to the world. People like W.E.B. Du Bois, Mary McLeod Bethune. Mrs. Moore taught us about the freedom fighter Harriet Tubman and Sojourner Truth. Oh, cool. She read stories to us by Zora Neale Hurston and poems by Langston Hughes, and she shared her Ebony magazine articles about black history. This wow. learning was deep and personal. It was important because it was about people like us, and it was yeah. secret. She didn't have to tell us not to tell anyone about these books. We knew they were dangerous when she appointed one of us to be a lookout person at the window. So if the superintendent of schools came in, one of his unannounced inspections, he wouldn't catch us using them. Isn't that so sad? Mm-hmm. I mean, it's still probably like that. You still can't. I mean, mm-hmm. you, you got in trouble for well, recommending they, Howard's in, right? Didn't you? I did. Yep. And yeah. and they they're still fighting now with the sixteen nineteen the sixteen nineteen project. Isn't that what it's called? I think so. It's a history curriculum. Yeah, I think that's what and, it's called. Um, all these people are coming out against it because it teaches race theory. Yeah, that's awful. Um, so in 1934, Harry Moore started the Brevard County NAACP and steadily built it into a formidable organization. In 1937, in conjunction with the All-Black Florida State Teachers Association and backed by the NAACP attorney Thurgood Marshall mm-hmm. in New York City, um, Moore filed the first lawsuit in the Deep South to equalize black and white teacher salaries. His good friend, John Gilbert, who's a principal of the Coco Junior High School, courageously volunteered as the plaintiff. Although the Gilbert case was eventually lost in state court, it spawned a dozen other federal lawsuits in Florida that eventually led to equalized salaries. Hmm. Cool. By 1941, NAACP work had become Moore's driving obsession. In 1941, he organized the Florida State Conference of the NAACP and soon became its unpaid executive secretary. 
He began churning out eloquent letters, circulars, and broadsides protesting unequal salaries, segregated schools, and the disenfranchisement wow. of black voters. It's good for him. I've never heard of this guy. Mm -hmm. In 1943, he moved into an even more dangerous arena, lynchings and police brutality. Mm. At first, his protests were confined to letters to the governor, but he quickly threw himself directly into lynching cases, taking sworn affidavits from the victims' families, and even launching his own investigations. From that point until his death, Moore investigated every single lynching in Florida. In 1944, Good. Thurgood Marshall won a major victory in the landmark Smith v. Allwright case, in which the U.S. Supreme Court ruled that Lily White Democratic Party primary was unconstitutional. I don't know much more than that. Okay. So, um, yeah. Harry Moore immediately organized the Progressive Voters League, and then in the next six years, due primarily to his leadership, over 116,000 black voters were registered in the Florida Democratic Party. This represented 31% of all eligible black voters in the state, a figure that was 51% higher than any other southern state. Ah. So that's a big achievement. In June 1946, yeah. he paid a terrible price for his political activism, oh. as he and Harriet were both fired from their teaching jobs. Uh. Realizing that he would be blacklisted from teaching, he took a bold step. He became a full-time paid organizer for the Florida NAACP. Okay. During his first two years, he built it to a peak of over 10,000 members. In January 1949, however, they doubled their annual dues from $1 to $2, and then they lost a bunch of members again. Wow. Oh. In July 1949, so now we're going to, this is circling back to last week. Gotcha. The Groveland rape case burst yes. upon the national scene after four young black men were accused of raping a white woman. Mm -hmm. Later evidence indicates that the 17-year-old girl had been beaten by her husband and that they concocted a phony I rape story to conceal the beating from her parents who had threatened to shoot him if he brutalized her again. Oh, I knew it. I knew mm -hmm. something wasn't right about that. A mob of more than 500 white men assembled to lynch the remaining three. When they couldn't locate the prisoners, they formed a caravan of 200 cars and descended on the black neighborhood of Groveland, where the families of the accused men lived. They shot into homes and set some on fire. The Florida governor sent the National Guard to restore order. Once again, Moore threw himself into the case. After uncovering evidence that the Groveland defendants had been brutally beaten, Moore leveled those charges against the most notorious lawman in the in the country, Sheriff Willis McCall of Lake County. Yeah. Willis McCall was notorious for his brutality against blacks. Year after year, he was reelected with the support of the citrus growers who had supplied Gross. with cheap chain gang prison labor at harvest time by arresting blacks on trumped up charges for minor crimes. He also chased any and all union organizers out of the county. Ugh. The Moors discover that while in McCall's custody, the three Groveland defendants were brutally beaten and made to stand on broken glass with their hands roped to a pipe over their heads. Oh, Jesus. Despite this torture, they refused to confess to a crime they did not commit. Unable to force a confession, McCall's deputies manufactured enough phony evidence to convince an all-white jury. Shepard and Irvin were sentenced to death. 16-year-old Greenlee was sentenced to prison. Charles Greenlee. Uh, um, and war veteran Sam Shepard and Walter Irvin, they were all arrested. I okay. think I. You talked about those last week, right? Yes. Yeah. Um, so let me um, skip uh, down a little bit because we did yeah. talk about that. And then then the sheriff goes out and shoots them. Yeah. And, Walter we, Irvin that's, and that's what we survives. talked about last, last episode. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and um, on, only six weeks later, 
On Christmas Day, 1951, Moore himself was killed when a bomb was placed beneath the floor joist directly under his bed. Oh, man. He died on the way to the hospital. His wife, Harriet, died nine days later. The protests over the Moore's deaths rocked the nation with dozens of rallies and memorial meetings around uh, around the country. President Truman and Florida Governor Fuller Warren were inundated with telegrams and protest letters. In 1952, the FBI launched a massive investigation of their deaths and Ku Klux Klan activity in Central Florida. The investigation pointed toward three Klan members, one of whom committed suicide the day after an FBI interview. The investigation slowed down Klan activity but led to no arrests. Four dead Klansmen were implicated in the murders. After three investigations, the most recent review having been closed August 2006, the case is closed but remains unsolved. Of course. Yeah, that's crazy. I think part of the thing that, <clears throat> I mean, we've discovered, we've talked about this endlessly, like the idea of doing this podcast was, hey, this is fun. We're going to do true crime and, and goofy pop culture shit. And then with the deeper we get into history, just all the racism is just overwhelming. Like you can't, you can't just mm-hmm. not talk about it. It's awful and terrible, but it's like important for us. We feel like it's still talk about it uh even though it's not not a ton of fun um so i'm gonna add some more horribleness to it uh because that same day we're gonna double down on it before we let i'm gonna have landis at the end kind of lighten it all up with some toys he's (laughs) he's looked up during the our quick break he he looked up some toys so he's gonna make it all better after i talk about bloody christmas i'm gonna talk about (laughs) bloody christmas really quick because that same day was bloody christmas in L.A. uh, (laughs) because that name was given to the severe beating of seven civilians by members of the Los Angeles Police Department on December 25th, 1951. The attacks left five Mexican-Americans and two white young men with broken bones and ruptured organs uh, that were properly investigated only after lobbying from the Mexican-American community. Um, So there had been a lot of since like the late 30s there was a lot of uh, police reforms and trying to uh, get better police officers. Um, William H. Parker was the chief of police uh, at the time. And a lot of police officers were suspended for corruption. Um, And the events, the events in this story were fictionalized in the 1990 novel, LA confidential, which became a film later. Yep, I remember um, that. So you remember that. So, yep. um, but th- there was a lot of reform started by Mayor Frank Shaw before this, um, uh, getting rid of corrupt officers and things like I said. Um, despite the reforms, the LAPD was faced with a continual deterioration in relations with the Mexican American community. Since the 1943 Zoot Suit Riots yep. during the Second World War, yes. we've heard about that. That Zoot Suit Riot, that song. And, well, it um, was the it was the Mexican Americans that was Zoot Suits were a trend in the Mexican American yeah, community. They, suits that they wore, but then cool looking racists, um, racist white people would would start to attribute Zoot Suits to gangs and so then they decided to attack all of these people in zoot suits um because they and and killed they killed people Mm -hmm. and um it was because they assumed they were in gangs just because they were mexican-americans and so that's kind of the backdrop to this because that those were the relations going on um 
and William H. Parker, this new chief, was kind of trying to reform the police department, and he had this whole thing that he was going to do a war on crime approach, and uh, he thought he could get these great people, uh, professional police department, um, and that everybody will, you'll get better people and they'll be great police. But the problem is a lot of these uh, police officers all held anti-Mexican sentiment. You know, they were all, they all believed Mexicans were delinquent and violent and they were racial profiling all the time. And that would lead to numerous violent encounters. So on this day, Christmas Eve, 1951, LAPD officers, Julius Trojanowski and Nelson Brownson responded to a report that minors were drinking alcohol at the showboat bar on Riverside Drive. On arrival, they found inside seven men, Daniel Rodella, Elias Rodella, Jack Wilson, William Wilson, Raymond Marquez, Manuel Hernandez, and Eddie Nora. Even though the men had identification proving they were legally old enough to drink, the officers told them to leave. They refused to go, and then the officers used force, which led to a fight starting in the parking lot. Both police officers were injured. One received a black eye, the other a cut that required stitches. Seven hours after this fight, LAPD officers arrested all the men at their own homes. Six were taken straight to the L.A. Central City Jail. However, the seventh, Daniel Rodella, was dragged to a squad car by his hair and driven to the city's Elysian Park, where he was savagely beaten by several police officers. Rodella suffered multiple facial fractures. He required two blood transfusions because of the extent of his injuries. I want to watch that movie again. What movie? Oh, LA Confidential. I totally forgot about that movie until I brought this up. I totally forgot about that. That's a good movie. I mean, was it the 90s? I think 91 or something. It's like Russell Crowe and um, Kim Bassinger. Russell Crowe? I barely, you know, I don't remember movies. Um, But on Christmas morning, a large number of police officers attending a departmental Christmas party were getting drunk in violation of the LAPD's policy on alcohol. When they became aware of a rumor that Trojanowski had lost an eye in the fight, the drunken officers decided to avenge their fellow policemen. The six prisoners were taken from their cells in the Central City Jail and lined up. As many as 50 officers then participated in a beating that lasted for 95 minutes. All the prisoners received major injuries, including punctured organs and broken facial bones. At least 100 people knew of or witnessed the beatings. Can you imagine 95 minutes of beating drunken police officers beating these guys? It's awful. Um, And so the senior LAPD management kept the attack on the prisoners out of the mainstream news for almost three months. Media coverage ignored the beatings on Christmas Day and focused on the brawl the night before only. The initial headline of the LA Times of the incident was officers beaten in bar brawl, seven men jailed. However, as Mexican-Americans pushed for a focus on police brutality and more reports of violence flooded in, the media began to turn against the LAPD, running stories condemning police tactics and even suggesting the amendment of Section 202 of the L.A. City Charter, which that was the one uh, that kind of gave police autonomy mm-hmm. uh, to do whatever Qualified they Qualified immunity yeah, or whatever. Do, yeah, yeah. Um, and in March of 1952, six of the seven men were charged with battery and disturbing the peace. The prosecution argued that the fight started when the officers asked Jack Wilson to leave the bar peacefully. The defendants testified that the fight began when Officer Trojanowski began hitting Wilson on the head with a blackjack, which is a, night, a nightstick. Uh, I thought it was one of those things. It's like two, two heavy things with a little 
in the middle with a chain in the middle kind of oh that's uh not a chain in the middle i know what you're talking about like the mace thing with no a not spiky that ball. i thought a blackjack was something else no i looked up blackjack just as it said it's a nightstick that's, oh, okay. that's what they called them i guess um oh i lost where i was um sorry they found the defendants guilty of two counts of battery and one of disturbing the peace however after the verdict was delivered judge call reprimanded the police force for its brutality so the 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 victims got uh found guilty here but afterwards the judge reprimanded the police force for its brutality calling for an independent investigation into the assault Chief Parker's response to this criticism was defensive. The police department's new war on crime policy had given it an us versus them mentality. Parker used the argument that the public had to support the police force to prevent anarchy and lawlessness, saying that any criticism against the LAPD damaged the police's ability to enforce the law. He even suggested that criminals were alleging police brutality to get him fired so the L.A. underworld could reestablish its illegal activities, um, which kind of <laughs> it's kind of funny that Landis brought up Dragnet being that they did this to kind of make the police look good. It kind of falls. It is weird how that falls into this. Well, it whole, could have been connected. Yeah, it, I, maybe it's strange because I was just looking at one of the quotes I didn't read to you earlier from Sergeant Joe Friday. He said, uh, it's awkward having a policeman around the house. Friends drop in. A man with a badge answers the door. The temperature drops 20 degrees. Oh, yeah. <laughs> oh man. <laughs> yeah. Uh, well, as as more uh, as the internal investigation uh, progressed, more complaints from other incidents were reported by the media, forcing Parker to act. Eventually, a 204-page internal report was compiled by the LAPD. Although it included interviews with more than 400 witnesses, many members of the LAPD had tried to impede the investigation through perjury or vague testimony. The report was also contradictory because it revealed that several police officers witnessed the beatings but concluded that none of the prisoners was physically abused in the manner oh alleged. They said a lot of people that uh, like originally cooperated later on record wouldn't cooperate. Mm-hmm. Um so the report led to grand jury hearings against the LAPD. Throughout the proceedings, the victims gave vivid accounts of their beatings, but the officers' testimonies, again, were contradictory and vague. Um, officers previously had said things wouldn't wouldn't say anything in court. They couldn't remember anything. Um, but the hearings resulted in eight officers being indicted for assault. The grand jury also issued a report that criticized LAPD senior officers for allowing the situation to get out of control reminded the police department that it functioned for the benefit of the public and not as a fraternal organization for the benefit of fellow officers. The eight indicted officers were tried between July and November of 1952. Five were convicted, but only one received a sentence of more than a year in prison. God, that's awful. A further 54 officers were transferred. And 39 were temporarily, temporarily suspended without pay. And that's like... How the- many officers total do they think it were involved in the thing? As many as 50 officers. Jeez. And only one got more than a year. Yeah, isn't that crazy? I mean, only five got convicted. 1951. It was just awful. Oh, and I do have one other good thing. But so, Landis, let's lighten the mood. What what Christmas uh, toys were out then? Well, there must have been an Alice in Wonderland movie that came out that year. There was. 
Okay, because there's yeah. the 1951 okay. Alice in Wonderland watch. Uh, oh, that's oh. cute. And it, and she appears just as she appeared in the Walt Disney's latest Technicolor movie. Uh, also, there's the uh, costumes for girls, which includes the Alice in Wonderland costume. It's uh, got a tea party design on the waist and a white apron. So, <laughs> uh, then there's Butch the pup toy. He swaggers and gruff gruffs. <laughs> But he wags his plastic tail. Um, here's the one I like. Uh, there's the Hopalong Cassidy wristwatch. Oh yeah, so, you know, it, you know these uh, watches uh, are probably gigantic mm-hmm. or gigantic wristwatches. Yeah, it's the genuine Hoppy wristwatch. It gets youngsters to the chuck wagon all the time. Oh, yeah. funny! They were so obsessed with the west westerns, wild in the west. 50s. All the shows were either crime or wild wild or westerns. Rest. Yeah. I don't get I don't get this one. The 1951 vintage crawling baby toy. This cute little tyke crawls with an extremely realistic lifelike motion that delights young. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And then there's Guy to Scotty. He's a remote control Scotty dog. There's the Jeep runabout. You gotta have yes. some kind of car, right? So there's the Jeep runabout. There's the Pepsi Cola mm-hmm. truck, right? So you got the little sides that come down where you can put the little Pepsi yeah. Cola bottles on it. Uh, it has two shell, six miniature dummy plastic cases of Pepsi Cola with little yeah. bottles in each one. You know, I'm sure they didn't didn't have warning labels on them. Like, <laughs> yeah. you know, you right. can swallow this kind of thing. We played yeah. with a bag of glass. Uh, a bag of broken glass. Vin- <laughs> and we've got a we've got a cowboy theme going in 1951 because you've got the yeah. vintage cowgirl outfit. Um and the pigtail doll, and uh, oh, the play stove. Every guy's learned to cook, yes. right? Probably, probably didn't give that to boys at the time. Probably not. Um, it's a grown-up stove. It has a modern design. It's made of heavy gauge, embossed metal, and realistic colors. I wonder if that means it was like yellow and green, and you know, because those are all the colors of the appliance. Yeah. Oh, right. Yeah, they were, weren't they? Yeah. In the, in, in the fifties, it has four plastic buttons that actually operate and comes with the durable plastic cooking utensils. So uh, the kids can burn, kids can burn the house down. Yeah. That's yeah. Right. yeah. Uh, there's also the Roy Rogers Western style denim. I mean, you can get all this stuff. Yeah. So, um, that's, all decked you know, out. Um, decked out with all the uh, Western. This, this one, you would like this one, Joe, is there's a truck terminal. You can get a whole Ooh. truck terminal where you can park your trucks and uh, Ooh, your toy to your big giant, Toy trucks? Yep. Yeah. 52 pieces, three large plastic trucks, three plastic baggage wagons. That's a bargain. Uh, that is. That was yeah. cheap. Things were uh, cheap then. Yeah. And then last but not least, a Tweety Swinging Bird, uh, <laughs> Tweety Singing Bird in Cage. I guess the bird sings huh. when you wind, oh, the, yeah. ca- wind the cage. So cool. That would drive you absolutely <laughs> crazy if you gave yeah. it. Yeah, no kidding. Well, it's good to know that uh, uh, par- uh, uh, kids were driving their parents nuts with toys the grandparents <laughs> probably bought those um that's always the way the grandparents exactly, buy all exactly. the annoying stuff yeah. we would always send all yeah. the annoying toys to my mom's house when yes, we'd stay there. All the like, take all these toys with you and, and leave them yeah and i got one more thing i forgot about right. that is also a light a light mood thing that we don't have to so Good. and i've been waiting for this because i knew this was this year and i totally forgot until just now when i was researching this um the movie Distant Drums came out. I don't know if you know what that was. That was a Western, but it contained the first, on December 29th, 1951, it came out. It contained the first known instance of what's known as the Wilhelm Scream. Have you ever heard of the Wilhelm Scream, Landis? I know I've talked with you about it, Amy. 
Um, it's a sound effect of a man screaming. It's been used in over 149 other movies, including The Hobbit and Star Wars. You will know this scream. Uh, Star Wars is used a couple of times. A stormtrooper gets hit and falls down. And he goes, ah! It's kind of like that. Well, why don't you play it? And I'm going to play it. So this first one was the first time it was used. This guy, this cowboy is on a horse and he gets eaten by an alligator, like an alligator. And he goes, but you've heard it. And the guy falls in the Sarlacc pit and return of the Jedi. And you hear it. The sound is named after private Wilhelm, a character in the charge at feather river, a 1953 Western in which the character gets shot in the thigh with an arrow. Uh, this was its first use following its inclusion in the Warner Brothers Stock Sound Library. Although The Charge of Feather River is believed to have been the third film to use the effect. The scream is believed to be voiced by actor Sheb ah! Woolley. Uh, ah! uh, yeah, so it talks about that when it was used in that in that the distant drums. Uh, soldiers are wading through the swamp in the Everglades, and one of them is bitten and dragged underwater by an alligator. The screams for that scene and other scenes of the movie were re- recorded later in a single take. The recording was entitled, Man Getting Bit by an Alligator and He Screamed. Ah! The fifth take of the scream was used for the soldier in the alligator scene. The fifth take, which later became known as the iconic Wilhelm scream, ah! was probably voiced, they don't know for sure, by actor Sheb Woolley, who played the uncredited role of Private Jessup in Distant Drums. Ah! So he said he, he, Wooly was best known for his 1958 novelty song, The Purple People Eater. Yeah. You guys ever heard of that? Yeah. And he was an Indian scout, uh, Pete Nolan, on the television well, series Rawhide. Flying Purple People Eater. Yep. And yep. he was on Rawhide, too. Uh, they think he's likely the voice actor who performed the scream because ah! uh, he did a lot of these, I guess. So, um, he always used to joke about being really good at screaming and dying in film. So the Wilhelm scream is now a thing. Whoops, a thing. My, my, I'm trying to put it back in the holder. The Wilhelm thing is now a scream. So here on out, every movie's got these. And we'll take you out at the end here with some of the screams. Um, and so we'll play them so you can hear them. Okay. Uh, and you can look them up on YouTube. But that. That's a lighter note to end on. Yes, that with is. all the murder and the racism and the awfulness yes. and dragnet. <laughs> yes. uh, but please check out Landis Wade's The Charlotte Readers podcast. <laughs> it's really good. It's really supportive of readers and authors, of authors, I should yeah. say. Um, and it's yeah. If you and you probably will get endless ideas of what to read, and you'll never catch up. <laughs> I, I certainly have read a lot of good books that I probably wouldn't have gotten to read or think about reading but 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 for meeting all these uh all these authors it's been great that's cool you get to to meet a lot of cool people so thanks for being here landis we got to get out of here it's been a a long episode but uh yeah thanks for being here and being on our show yeah yep it's been great thank you for having me appreciate it thanks let dale through Timelines is a member of the Queen City Podcast Network, powered by Ortho Carolina. Find out more at queencitypodcastnetwork.com.